Are you familiar with that statement, when the cat is away, the mice will play? Used to use that a lot as a kid. Remember when the teacher would leave the classroom? Spitballs are going all over the place, paper throwing stuff around, kids running around yelling, anticipating the moment when the teacher would return and often missing it. Then there was a class detention, of course. Do they even have that anymore? Do you have class detentions anymore, teachers? Probably you can't. Probably not allowed to. Might wound their little souls. <laughs> on the way out of my grandparents' place when I was a kid, I remember they used to have this plaque on the wall. It had something to do with um, you know, make sure you're not found in the wrong place when Jesus returns. Ever see that kind of thing? Well, something we've learned in this series is that Jesus sees what we're doing all the time. It's not like we have to anticipate when he returns and try to make sure that we're in, in a good place. He knows everything that goes on all the time. We learned in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is always watching us. He watches our charity, our giving. He watches what we do, how we do it, what we give, how we give. Watches our prayer lives. Are we showing off? Or are we authentically praying to him? The third in this series is the matter of fasting. Jesus is always watching. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. To show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's the word of God. Our Father, as Bibles are open this morning and hearts are open and anxious to receive from you, I pray, O oh God, that you will help us to focus on your message to us today. What do you want for your people? What do we need to learn? What do we need to adjust? What do we need to change? What do we need to stop? What do we need to start? May our hearts truly be in a state of obedience, O oh Lord, today as we receive and welcome and apply your word to us. We ask through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. So while it's most unlikely that the majority of Christians need a lecture on incorrect fasting, 
primarily because very few Christians actually practice this discipline very much, if at all. But it is noteworthy once again for us to notice that Jesus is not impressed by a flurry of religious activity that is just to show off, that is just to get impressions out to people, that is to do it to be seen by people, by the crowd. Even if it's something quite self-sacrificial like fasting. Using religion to play to the crowd, to appeal to the crowd, gets no airtime with God. In fact, he's criticized. Jesus loathes fake. Man was not made to be glorified. In, in all of our flurry of religious activity to be seen by people, it's really to be honored and glorified by people. We weren't made to be glorified. It, it's completely an incorrect purpose for humans to receive glory. Only one in the universe is worthy of glory. That's the living God, almighty Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our magnificent creator, we're the creature. We've done nothing very spectacular. We're dependent, we need, we depend entirely on God for every breath that we take. He's to be glorified. And in each of these situations, Jesus is pointing this out without actually saying it that way. Man is not to be glorified, only God. Only God qualifies for attention and praise and glory and honor. So the question today is to fast or not to fast, how much and how? There might be some surprises for us here today. Let me give you a summary statement from Martin Lloyd-Jones on his commentary and Sermon on the Mount. I like it very much. Here's what he says. He, he says this with regard to the whole issue of fasting and as a discipline of your body, as a discipline of your life. He makes the point that I must discipline myself at all times. Fasting is something, but, but we must be a disciplined people always with respect to our lives. Said, I must discipline myself at all times, and I must fast only when I feel led by the Spirit of God to do so. When I am intent on some mighty spiritual purpose, not according to rule, but because I feel there is some peculiar need of an entire concentration of the whole of my being upon God and my worship of Him. I, I, I believe Martin Lloyd-Jones has captured the whole biblical theology of fasting in that little fray, that little tiny paragraph. That's why I put it up for you to sort of um, make it the benchmark of where we're going to go this morning. Because fasting for New Testament believers is not the same 
in its frequency as it was for Old Testament saints. And there's a reason for that, and I want, I want to uh, note that this morning. For instance, as other disciplines like prayer or scripture reading or corporate worship or service or study or any of the other disciplines which are to be frequent, fasting is not. It's entirely different as a discipline. Now, now listen, let's do some background study to sort of catch ourselves up to, to the time of Jesus. First of all, fasting um, was a far more prominent part of Old Testament saints' spiritual experience. But they were only commanded to fast once a year. If you um, want to quickly um, flip back in your Bibles to Leviticus 16, I'll point out to you that only one command to fast in the, in the New, uh, Old Testament and, and it's Leviticus 16, verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you, Israel. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you. Now, this, this phrase, deny yourselves, was a sweeping statement of denial. Food and all kinds of things, physical things, including work. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. So the day of atonement was the only command to fast in the Old Testament. But there was all kinds of fasting. If you read through the Old Testament, there are all kinds of fasting beyond that. Regularly connected to repentance and sorrow over sin. Now, some extra-biblical uh, um, ancient uh, writings tell us that Reuben, son of Jacob, fasted for seven years for his sin of selling, Jacob, or selling Joseph, his brother. We're told that Simeon fasted for two years for the same reason. And we also find that Judah fasted the rest of his whole life for his failure with Tamar. But then in the scriptures, we find other examples of fasting in the Old Testament. Judges 20, 26, uh, they fasted with respect to the civil war against the Benjamites. Samuel called for a fast in 1 Samuel 7, 6 over Baal compromise, the people. Nehemiah called for a fast of the people to confess their sins in Nehemiah 9, 1. Notice it's, it's repentance and sorrow over sin consistently. And then we've, we discover that Moses in Exodus 24, 15 fasted in preparation for revelation when he was to, when he was to climb the mountain and, and meet with God. Daniel prayed and fasted in Daniel 9, 3, waiting for the revelation of God as well. And Jesus fasted in preparation for this temptation in Matthew 4, verse 2. So there's fasting going on. There's only one command to fast in the Old Testament. But by the time Jesus was walking on this earth, the Pharisees were insisting on fasts twice a week. They had made their own rules 
nothing to do with the scriptures. Pharisees were boosting it to twice a week to put piety on display and asceticize the flesh. I think I made that word up. At least I got a red line in spell check and I could never get it fixed. The idea of work, working the flesh, um, being aesthetic of the flesh, trying to earn favor with God by the flesh, but to be seen by men, to be sure. Look how religious I am. Twice a week. So even in the Old Testament, stewardship, the Old Testament dispensation, fasting was never meant to be a frequent discipline. It was an unusual and extraordinary thing. If you want to do some further reading on, on that particular, read Zechariah 7, 9 to 10, and, and Zechariah 8, 19. We're not going to take the time to do that right now. Jesus, of course, Lord of all, neither needs nor wants our outward shows of personal piety as if somehow this is a grand witnessing tool. He doesn't need that. So what had happened by the time of Jesus is it had gone from fasting as led by spiritual leaders who understood the gravity of fasting to virtue signaling on a weekly basis, twice a week, which amounted to not fasting, but rather pride, which is hated by God, strutting their religious stuff so it all could see. And, and um, so they had gone from once a year, the personal command and, national, and then national emergencies to twice a week to intentionally disfiguring their faces. Do you notice what Jesus says here? Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces. They were actually putting makeup on their faces to make their face look more pasty, like they were really sacrificing. They were ne next nigh unto death. Jesus says here, no, no, no. Put, when you're fasting, put oil on your head and wash your face. That's what, you would go, that, that's what you would do to dress up to go to a celebration, to go to a wedding. We're going to look at that. That's very important because they went from the command of the Old Testament once a year to now commanding twice a week of those who were really pious, those who were really um, uh, interested in God, to intentionally disfiguring their faces to really show off to next um, infecting uh, and critiquing Jesus, infecting the disciples uh, of, of John the Baptist. Turn over one page in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter nine. To publicly critiquing Jesus, can you imagine? And this Pharisaic virtue signaling had even infected John's disciples. You'll, you'll see that here. Then, verse 14 of Matthew chapter 9, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Note that. The men closest to Jesus. And Jesus gives an explanation here. 
And in this explanation, we learn something for ourselves and about ourselves. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Now, what was he talking about here? He is the bridegroom. He was with his disciples. They were to celebrate that he was with them. There would be a time between the crucifixion and the resurrection where he would be taken from them. The bridegroom would be taken from them. Then they will fast. But when the bridegroom is with the bride, it's celebration, not mourning. Stay with me. It's interesting that this whole teaching uh, brought Luther to say, I have not seen a right fast in 1537. Jesus is teaching here from fasting to feasting because the Son of God is here. Notice what he says as, as we read on, verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now there's been wild and fanciful exegesis of this particular description and illustration here. But in context, Jesus is talking about the bridegroom and the fact that his disciples aren't fasting. So let's keep it in context. What's Jesus talking about? Now, Baptists wouldn't know anything about wine and wineskins, but you might know something about a garment, sewing a garment, a, a patch on a garment, a new patch on an old uh, garment. When you wash it, something's going to shrink. And it won't be something that's been washed over and over again. It'll be the new thing and it will shrink and tear away. Jesus is saying, I am the new wine and, we, and, and I won't be put or squeezed into the old religious rituals. Otherwise, the whole thing is ruined. So, he talks about a wedding here, and nobody wants a sullen, withdrawn recluse at a wedding. Anybody who's had a wedding, a father of the bride, and then some grouchy grouch shows up at the wedding. You're like, this is a day of celebration. You know, I invited you to the wedding. I'm going to feed you. You're here to celebrate my, my daughter's marriage. If you're going to be grouchy grouch, like, leave, right? So this, Jesus is talking here about a wedding that... that in a wedding setting, there's not to be mourning and sadness. There's to be celebration and gladness. There's to be, there's to be joy. Nobody wants this. Jesus has freed us. John Chrysostom in, in 385 AD, Jesus has freed us from the watchful gaze of public opinion to an authentic heart watched by the Father. Things are about to change from fasting to the new wineskins of joy. 
feasting with the bridegroom at the Lord's table. There couldn't be better timing for this. Believe I was once again stunned by the fact that we were having the Lord's table at the same time I'm teaching this because this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's going from fasting to the Lord's table. He's talking about the wedding. He's talking about the bridegroom is with us. He's talking about celebration and joy. The bridegroom has come. The bridegroom is with his people, which stands in until the marriage supper of the Lamb. This stands in until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Good news that has brought joy. The bridegroom is with us. Now, the only possible uh, challenge with this is to determine what Jesus is actually referring to is the time when the bridegroom is taken from them. Does he mean just the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection? Or does he, in fact, mean after he ascended into heaven as well until his second coming? I'm inclined to say that in all the teaching of the New Testament, it seems that Jesus does not want us to think of him as away from us, as gone from us. The bridegroom has come. When we celebrate today and we're together, where two or three are gathered, he's with us. When we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, the, the, the concentrated attendance and presence of Jesus is here among us. So I'm inclined to actually lean in the direction that, that Jesus is talking about the fact that we live in the era of the bridegroom. We live in the era of celebration. We live in the era of joy, the, the thanksgiving for our salvation, and to be celebrative about that. So, as with all other commitments to personal devotion, Jesus is saying here, if and when, it needs to be private. So here's the biblical scoop that I'll, I'll give you on fasting from what I can understand from the scriptures. And we'll wrap it up. Jesus approved and anticipated fasting, but never commanded it. So I don't want you to get the idea when he said the bridegroom is here, we're never going to fast. I don't want you to get that idea because I don't think Jesus is moving in that direction. He's contrasting this twice a week, somber, pasty face, sad, all of that over against the bridegroom is here and the joy of our salvation. That's the contrast. So Jesus approved of fasting but never commanded it. So we are free to fast according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But you must be certain the Spirit of God is leading you. This is not a discipline like prayer. It's not a discipline like worship or gathering. It's not a discipline like service. It is not. It's a unique discipline. And you never fast just to fast. It must be directed by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, fasting becomes the discipline, and it's not meant to be that. Fasting is a means to an end. Prayer is an end in itself. Worship is an end in itself. Reading the scriptures is an end in itself. But fasting is a means to an end. The Pharisees were making it the end. They were making it about the fast. It's not that. 
It's of no value unless it means something. It's not a discipline in and of itself. Paul fasted, but never mentions it in his letters to the churches. That's important, I think. Paul mentions prayer and worship and all the scriptures and everything else, but he never mentions fasting. I think we should note that. Because many of us might arrive this morning and said, oh, sermon on fasting. I hardly ever do that. I'm, I'm, am I going to leave seriously convicted over that? No, I don't think so. Unless you've rebuffed the Holy Spirit's call in your life to do such a thing. Just because Jesus never commanded it, Paul never mentioned in his letters. We're called to feast and we're freed to fast. I think that's the important thing to take away. We're called to feast, to feast on the bridegroom, to feast on the fact that we get to celebrate our salvation every day of our lives. We get to celebrate the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ every moment of our lives. We're called to feast about that and we're freed to fast if the Holy Spirit leads us to. Because when fasting is misused, it's a tremendous burden of unnecessary slavery, as one commentator put it. There are whole groups of people who have been ascetics their whole lives and done without this and done without that. And at the end of it all, they're going to realize they were entirely entitled to celebrate Jesus. Because God desires mercy over sacrifice, Hosea 6.6. Fasting is for you. The other disciplines are for you and for others. Jesus is interested in not only what we do in our own personal lives, but how it impacts other people. Fasting doesn't impact other people. It's about you and God. So let's, let me give you quick meanings about fasting. If the Spirit of God leads you to fast, or if under some extraordinary circumstances, a community of people, a congregation, agree that the Spirit of God is leading us to fast, then here's what I think are five quick meanings for fasting that is not a misuse, but a use. One, it is an act of discipline as a means to an end, recognizing the important connection between the physical and the spiritual and should not be disconnected from either. To do without to prioritize a spiritual urgency. That's what it's about. To do without in order to prioritize some sort of spiritual emergency in your life. Dieting is not fasting. It's just dieting. And it's okay, it's fine, do it, but don't call it a fast. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is not dieting. It's for some spiritual urgency. That, because you must continue to connect the physical and the spiritual. Otherwise, it's not a discipline. A spiritual discipline, that is. It can be an act of penitence. Sorrow or urgency is directed by the Holy Spirit to either the disciple or the church to actually perhaps legitimize that the repentance is authentic. And sometimes you have grieved the Holy Spirit so egregiously 
that the Spirit of God may direct you to the need to fast, to legitimize or authenticate that your repentance is genuine. Third, it's, it's, is a discipline that trains the disciple in godliness, learning to say no, to deny oneself of necessary things, teaches us how to say no or to be able to say no to sin. I have counseled often this way that if someone is just trapped or, or burdened by a besetting sin and the Holy Spirit so leads that fasting may be the way that the Spirit of God will train you to say no to that sin in your life. And it may require something that dramatic as fasting to be trained in godliness, to, to deny self, to deny your flesh. The Bible teaches us to starve the flesh. Fourthly, disciplines us to switch the measurement of things. Man is not the measure of the abundance of things he has. And sometimes we just need to make a choice to fast, to simplify things that are crowding out our focus on Jesus. If the Spirit of God leads to that, that's a legitimate and important fast. And then finally, it's to draw our focus and attention to God. But never as a transfer of divine sovereignty. Some people think that fasting is more likely to get an answer to their prayer or what they want from God. Do not ever think that way. That shifts sovereignty to you. In other words, if I fast, God owes me an answer to my prayer. God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. And people will give testimonials. Oh, I fasted. I got a new car out of it. No, you got a new car. It had nothing to do with the fast. You can't bribe God with spiritual disciplines. Otherwise, he's not sovereign anymore. And God doesn't shift his character, who he is, by what we're doing. So it's to draw the focus on God as the one we need, the only one who can help us, but it doesn't force him to help us. You see what I'm saying? It does not force him. You can't bribe God with a fast. God remains in charge no matter how long one fast. You can fast until you die. It won't change what God is going to do. Spiritual urgency is always and only rewarded in God's way. So, how do we, what do we say to these things in terms of transitioning? I, I, I'm firmly convinced that as I've studied the scriptures, the early church, in the early church, the Lord's Supper became the hallmark of public piety and worship. It shifted. It's the place of true joy and celebration. And it's the ceremony that the church needs to attend to, to take seriously. That you're here this morning is an important moment. The discipline of worship, but on top of that, the discipline of worship at the Lord's table. 
It's a public, corporate, communal connection with the bridegroom and his bride. This is an extremely significant ceremony in the New Testament church. I've tried to, over all of these years, upgrade baptism and the Lord's table in your hearts because of the significance of these two ceremonies and what they mean. It's here that there's no place for disloyalty toward the Lord or misbehavior. In fact, um, Francis Chan, if you know that name, he's on a bit of a quest right now. And he put it this way, the Lord's table is the most dangerous activity New Testament, the New Testament saint engages in. He's right. When the scriptures say, examine yourself. The reason some of you are sick and weak and asleep. Sick, weak, and dead is because of your abuse of the Lord's table. The abuse of the people of God. The abuse of the Lord. Is this not, is this not an important, is this not seriously urgent? Jesus doesn't talk about fasting this way. Paul doesn't talk about fasting this way. He talks about the Lord's table this way. God's people must take the table of the Lord seriously in their lives. This is a serious moment. You're not just an audience or spectators of something. You're participants. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, you're the, it's a participation in the Lord himself. The most dangerous activity, the most dangerous thing for Christians is not disease, it's not bandits, it's not wild animals, it's not risky occupations, it's abusing the Lord's table. Abusing the saints. Being misaligned with either Jesus or one another. That's why before you partake of these elements, we're all called to examine ourselves, to be certain that we're not taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. We are worthy because of Christ and he has made us worthy for this table, but it is possible to take it in an unworthy manner. And the unworthy manner is if you're living in open disobedience to the Lord and refusing to repent, or if you are in a, a, a um, broken relationship with a brother or sister and refusing to make it right. So brothers and sisters, as we go to the table of the Lord, let's examine ourselves. Let's examine our hearts. Let's examine our relationships. Let's make sure we are repenting of our sin and our disobedience because once again, the Lord requires obedience over sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22. You can fast twice a week for the next six months 
But if you don't come to the Lord's table right, this is the place, this is the New Testament place where the bridegroom meets with the bride in a powerful way. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. We recognize, O Lord, that you are the Lord of fasting as you lead us in that unusual discipline. And I pray, O God, that our hearts would be attuned to you, that we might know how we are to conduct ourselves in this. We certainly know we're not to make a public spectacle of it. Or we have a reward in full. We want rewards from you because you give the right rewards. And Lord, as the New Testament church celebrates the presence of the bridegroom, you made it abundantly clear to those who would live by works of the flesh and fast by works, fast the fasting of works, that we are in a time of celebration and joy, in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So may we be found faithful to you, O Lord, today as we examine our hearts to see that, first of all, we be in the faith. And if we are in the faith, that we're in right relationship with you, living in obedience, and that we're in right relationship with one another. And if not, Lord, we make it our urgent, uh, urgent business to take care of all of these things immediately. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The bridegroom wants us to remember and never forget that he is coming back. He is coming again. And in the meantime, the bridegroom is ours. We are always in his presence. He is with us. And so for us, it's more feasting than fasting. We are freed to fast based on the urgency of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we are called because of the forgiveness of our sins. And we don't have to sacrifice anymore because the sacrifice has been made. We are called to feast in joy, in great joy, as we live in the grace of God, in the grace of Christ Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation. We bless your name. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. You're an awesome God. And we thank you that we've been invited to the feast that celebrates the bridegroom and the bride. We're waiting the marriage supper of the Lamb as we're reminded at the end of that text, until he comes. And Lord, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.